0: Our study this evening is Nero, a maker of martyrs. And as we look at this man's life, the man who's actually never mentioned specifically by name in the New Testament, uh, we're going to notice a, a, trans, a, 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 a trajectory in this man's life that brought him from relative indifference towards uh, the things of the gospel to a very decided, a, a very decided uh, despisal of those things, and we'll see his life end in despair and misery. Nero, a maker of martyrs. So we look at this, we're going to look at his initial indifference, and we'll see that particularly as he deals with Paul in Paul's first Roman imprisonment, we will trace his descent into tyranny. We will look at his subsequent demise and then finally his scandalous legacy, his initial indifference, his descent into tyranny, his subsequent demise, and his scandalous legacy. Now let's look at a little bit of the details surrounding his background. Nero's original name was not Nero. It was Lucius, and he was born on December 15th, A.D. 37. In other words, Paul was about 30, at least 32 years old when Nero was born. Paul was already converted to Christ by the time Nero or his birth name, Lucius, was born. His mother's name, that is Lucius's or Nero's mother's name, was Agrippina. His father, Domitius, died when Lucius, or Nero, was only three years old. When Domitius died, the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, married Nero's mother, Agrippina. And when he did, he adopted Agrippina's son, Lucius, and when Lucius was adopted by Emperor Claudius, Lucius became Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, uh, Germanicus. That was his full name. And when Claudius, the emperor, died in AD 54, Nero, who was 16 years of age at the time, was chosen to be his successor thanks to his mother. Uh, Nero had a stepbrother, Britannicus, who was ready for the throne, but it was Agrippina who made sure that her son, uh, Claudius' stepson, would be the one to actually take power. In those early years of Nero's reign, Agrippina played a significant role in the decision-making process, and that was a good thing because Nero was only 16 years old when he received this power. But Nero was influenced by his mistress, uh, Papea, and he then had his mother first pushed out of the circle of influence, and eventually he had his own mother killed. The famed Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca became Nero's tutor when he ascended to the throne and his close advisor. He too, along with Agrippina, was highly influential in the first five years of Nero's reign. And just a, a note, an interesting connection here. Seneca, this philosopher who was, who was Nero's tutor during those early years of Nero's rule, was the brother to a different ruler mentioned in the New Testament, Gallio. Gallio is mentioned in Acts chapter 18. He was the proconsul of Achaia and Paul was brought before Gallio in Acts 18 by the Jews and Gallio in a very important moment declared that, that the Jews had no basis for bringing any accusations against Paul. He declared Paul innocent and instead punished the Jews for what they had done in causing a disturbance. That was Gallio. That was the brother of Seneca, this philosopher, well-known philosopher, and Seneca was the, was the tutor to the young Nero. Seneca's influence, however, waned and Nero's actions eventually led Seneca to, uh, to, to flee and then eventually led to Seneca's suicide in AD 64. Nero was not a, a virtuous man by any stretch, and that certainly increased, uh, the, the debauchery and vices of Nero increased over time. Nero married his stepsister Claudia Octavia in 1853, but he eventually divorced her and married his mistress, Papea, 12 days later. Nero would later influence Claudia's suicide. Nero's second wife, this mistress who had become his wife, Papea, died in 865, just a few years after being married officially to Nero. Roman historians state that she and her unborn baby died when Nero kicked her in a fit of rage. Nero would go on to marry one more time. He would then divorce that third wife. And then after that, he was known for his flagrant homosexual unions, things that Uh, cannot even be described in this kind of a setting. Paul's interaction with Nero are limited to two two periods of time in particular. Now, we cannot say that Paul, we cannot conclude definitively that Paul spoke to Nero face to face. Now, there is a text in Acts 27, uh, verse 13, where Paul does Relate to the people who are on the the ship that was uh, about to be uh, broken up in the in the storm, and he does say in in Acts 27 verse uh, verse uh, and I can't uh, recall it specifically uh, at this time. I think it's verse 24. Yes, he says, "Do not be." He recalls a vision. He says, "Do not be afraid, Paul." you must stand before Caesar. And, and so Paul then says, no one's going to die. I'm not going to die. God has promised uh, that I will stand before Caesar. And so just stay with me. Now that suggests that Paul actually may have stood face to face or at least in the same room as Nero, who was Caesar. Caesar was his title at the time and Nero was his name. But we just don't know definitively because... Uh, Nero delegated these kinds of trials to a, a particular class of rulers. At the very least, we can say that Paul did appear before Nero's court, a body which decided cases on the emperor's behalf. And like I said, there were two such instances in Paul's life. And here's a timetable of Paul's life. If he was born at the latest 85, and he was converted at 8033, so he was around 28 years old at the youngest. Uh, Nero was born in 8037. He, Nero became emperor in 8054. And then Paul, uh, appealed to Caesar around 8050. 8059, he is shipped off to Rome, and then he has his case heard before Caesar, or at the very least before Caesar's court, sometime in this period of two years, there would have been different hearings from 8060 to 62. So it's possible that Paul was in the same room as Nero around that time, certainly with Nero's closest delegates. There's an event that then happens after that, once Paul is released from that imprisonment, from custody, he's turned into his freedom, as we're going to talk about. There's an event in 8064, the burning of Rome, which becomes very important in the timeline. And after that, the persecution of Christian begins by Nero, and that's what leads to Paul's second trial before Caesar, his second Roman imprisonment, sometime around the years 8065, 8066 maybe 8067, and that will eventually lead to Paul's martyrdom. He is not released after this. And then Nero is going to commit suicide a few months later in 8068. That's a brief timeline. So those red circles there really show us where the interaction would have been between the Apostle Paul and Nero's court, possibly even Nero himself. Now let's look at these four stages of Nero and his relationship to Paul and the gospel Paul preached. First, Nero's initial indifference. Like I said, Nero is never named in the New Testament, but he is referred to by the title that he assumed, the title of Caesar. After Paul was arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, he was arrested at the instigation of the Jews. He was then held in custody by the governor of Judea, Governor Felix, for two years in a city called Caesarea on the Mediterranean. And you can read of this in Acts chapter 21 verses 27 to chapter 24 verse 27. It would have been two years, 80 57 to 59. Two years sitting in prison and Paul, no, nothing's happening with the process. Felix, the governor, is then replaced after these two years with another governor by the name of Festus. And it's Festus who agreed to revisit Paul's case there in Caesarea. Recognizing an opportunity at that moment, Paul doesn't want to languish any longer there in Caesarea. He's a Roman citizen. He has certain rights. This should not be happening to him. He also has the desire to go to Rome. And so when he's brought before Festus... He makes this important statement, I appeal to Caesar. We read of this in Acts 25, verses 6 to 12. Let me just read some of this where he says, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. That is Nero. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true, of which these men accuse me, No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. A little bit after that, there's another hearing there in Caesarea, and this time there is another representative, a king by the name of Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, who comes to hear Paul along with his sister Bernice Festus is there as well, and again, Paul makes this defense, and as he does, Agrippa then contends to Festus at the end and said, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And again, that's a reference to Nero, who was the Caesar at the time. And of course, as we know, that then precipitates this dangerous journey by ship to go 2,000 miles from Caesarea on the Mediterranean, which was not far from Jerusalem, all the way to the city of Rome. Once Paul got to Rome, he was allowed to stay by himself. He wasn't put in a, in a cell. He was a Roman citizen, and the charges brought against him had not been brought by the Romans themselves. They'd been brought by the Jews. So the Romans treated him with, relative, uh, with a relative sense of, of security. They certainly put a guard by him 24-7, but allowed him to rent his own home in Rome and to accept visitors, to preach to visitors, to to teach, to send men on on short-term missionary trips, and even to write epistles. It's during this time that Paul writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon as he is waiting for hearings before Caesar's court and as he's waiting for his final vindication. In fact, we read a very interesting statement in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, as Paul brings that prison letter to a close. He's writing from Rome to the church in Philippi, and he even says this, all the saints greet, you referring to those who had been visiting him there in Rome, believers who were coming to his home, and then he says this, especially those of Caesar's household. Which indicates that Paul's evangelism was having an impact even on some of those who were the closest to Nero. Paul says even they now are saints and they send greetings. An amazing, an amazing reality. And that's why he tells the Philippian church earlier on in Philippians 1 verse 12, don't worry about me because what is happening to me is working towards the furtherance of the gospel. Paul had a lot of opportunities there while he was under this first Roman Imprisonment. And he did anticipate release, and that's why he would write to Philemon, one of these other prison letters, and say, At the same time, prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. And you can see an optimism in Paul's writing of these prison letters that he knew there was nothing that could be brought against him, Uh, that the Jews had no basis, Paul hadn't broken Roman law, and he should be released. Nero would have been about 24 years of age when Paul would have entered this period of time, AD 60-62, to 62, as he had these hearings before Nero's court. As I said, the charges were raised against Paul by Jews in Jerusalem, not by Roman officials. And it appears even that through a reference in Acts chapter 28 that the Jews didn't even send a delegate to Rome uh, because probably they knew that they had no chance of bringing any successful accusations against Paul. And so Nero's court releases Paul back into freedom, indicating Nero's essential indifference to the matter. He probably thought this all as a, just a big internal debate among the Jews. It's frivolous. It has nothing to do with Roman law. It has to do with the Jews and their scriptures. And he would have had no interest in those things. But he recognizes Paul as a Roman citizen and says, you're free to go. That was the first That was the first exposure. But Nero didn't stay indifferent. Now let's look at his descent into tyranny. Two years after Paul's release from Roman custody, Paul was released around AD 62. Two years later, an historic event occurred which resulted in a very dramatic shift in the way that Emperor Nero would relate to Christians like Paul. It was the burning of Rome. The fire began at night on July 18th, AD 64. It burned nine days. It destroyed 10 of the 14 regions of the city of Rome, or two-thirds of that city. While it may have been started by accident, rumors quickly circulated that Roman soldiers were observed with torches going to light different parts of the city, helping the fire spread. And it was known that Nero himself had wanted to build a bigger palace and had wanted to engage, as Romans typically did, in a new building project Romans loved to build. Some Roman historians even said that while the city burned, Nero sang songs from his balcony as he watched the buildings collapse. The historians, one historian in particular by the name of Tacitus, then explain what happened next after the fire in summer of AD 64. Neither human help nor imperial magnificence. Manufi- uh, <laughs> Manuf- I can't even say that, I'm tired. Munificence, Munificence, which means great generosity. I know that, I can say that. Nor imperial great generosity, nor all the modes of placating the gods, placating heaven, Tacitus writes, could stifle the scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the most with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Now again, it's it's a secular or it's a pagan writer, I should say, writing about the Christians, and he's describing these Christians as, as those who the population loathed because of their vices. Now that's a accusation by a pagan writer. And then the pagan writer Tacitus goes on to say this, Christus, which is a reference to Christ, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign under Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition, which which is Christianity, was checked for a moment only to break out once more, not only in Judea, the home of the disease, But in the capital itself, that is in Rome, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. He continues and says this about Nero. First then, the confessed members of this sect, that is Christianity, were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, in other words, as they were interrogated and told of other Christians... Vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the account of arson as for the hatred of the human race. They accused Christians of hating the human race. And derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs. Or they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in in the circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted in his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they, the Christians, were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, But to the ferocity of a single man. Now that's a complicated writing of history by a a senator, a Roman senator who lived shortly after, ruled shortly after the time of Nero. But he explains what was going on, and basically, Nero had to find a scapegoat. His, His burning of Rome didn't have the desired effect. He tried to pour upon the people all kinds of gifts. They wouldn't take it and so he had to find someone to accuse and he chose the Christians. And so what he would do with them is, as as Tacitus says, he would put them in the skins of animals and then let the dogs tear them to pieces. He would crucify some of them. And even worse, what he would do would be to, to set them on poles in his garden and then to light them at night, to provide light for the people who would come and watch the spectacle. In fact, this becomes the theme of some paintings as this one, which show the spectacle as the audience would watch as these Christians who are bound on tall poles would be lit on fire to provide light for Nero's gardens. That was... That was his descent into tyranny, and that then would lead to a subsequent demise. Nero's new anti-Christian agenda, beginning shortly after the fire, so it would have been AD 65, would eventually reach the Apostle Paul. Our best assumption is that Paul was arrested for a capital crime like treason or the propagation of a new and unlawful religion. The place of his arrest is unknown. We don't know where this happened. The last statement that we have from Paul that he makes while he's in freedom during this time is in the letter that he writes to Titus, which would have been written around AD 64. And, and Paul says that he wants to go and spend the winter in Nicopolis, which is on the eastern side of Greece, in the Adriatic Sea that Paul wanted to to spend the winter there. There were no shipping lanes open in winter. Everything came to a close because of the weather. So Paul said, I'm going to winter there. He's going to set up his ministry base there for the winter months. It's possible that it was there in Nicopolis that Paul was arrested, but we don't know. Some have suggested, some uh, some historians based on tradition, that when Paul heard of the persecution that had broken out against the believers in Rome, Paul himself went to comfort and encouraged those believers in Rome, and was therefore arrested within Rome itself. Paul was imprisoned once again, probably around the year eighty sixty five, and this time under very different circumstances. Tradition says he was placed in the Mamertine prison, a prison that was used only to house the most serious criminals that had been charged with crimes against the state. The cavity was a very damp place due to a high water table. It was bone chilling cold in winter. It is here that Paul writes 2nd Timothy, the last letter that he writes that we know of. It's his last will and testament. And in that letter, he clearly anticipates death. Now, I want to read a text from 2nd Timothy that I think helps us put in perspective the kind of things that Christians were enduring in that day. He says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 12, for example, he says this to Timothy. Timothy would have been fully aware of the persecution taking place in Rome by Nero as Christians were burned or crucified or torn to pieces by animals. And Paul says this, Now you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering such as what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We sometimes quote that last verse, and we quote that in terms of persecution being some uncomfortable words we have to endure at work because of our stand for Jesus Christ. Or perhaps a missed promotion because we believe in the gospel. Or some kind of discomfort that we feel at a family reunion or among our neighbors because of the stand that we take for the truth. But understand this, when Paul wrote these words that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he's not thinking of some discomfort or a lost promotion. He is thinking of being burned in a garden as light. He's thinking of being clothed in a wild animal skin and thrown to the dogs who would subsequently rip the person to pieces in excruciating pain. That's what Paul was thinking. That's what Timothy would have in mind, and certainly it it, it impresses upon us the fact that we live in such a secure, safe environment that even some of our worst illustrations of persecution today doesn't do anything to resemble what Christians in this age and many other ages in church history have ever had to encounter. But Paul was strong. Later on in this letter, he would say this, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That's not a reference to Paul's first Roman imprisonment five years earlier. This is a reference to the fact that during a typical Roman trial, there would be a hearing that would start off the the trial. And that hearing would determine what kind of issues were at stake and what kind of possible uh, punishments would be in view and what were the charges and so on and so forth. So around AD 65, Paul first has a hearing, and we read that at that hearing already, other Christians are deserting Paul because of fear of what is happening. And Paul even says, may it not be counted against them. But he says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Some suggest that this reference to the lion's mouth is a reference to Nero himself. And that during that first, that first hearing that perhaps here Paul is before Nero and he makes a bold declaration of the gospel and Nero is not able at that moment to snuff out his life. The Lord protected him. But then Paul goes on to state, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This was... Paul, who undoubtedly remembered the words spoken to him at his conversion. Remember going back all the way to our first study, so we spent some time in Acts chapter 9, and we read of what the Lord said to Ananias when the Lord convinced Ananias that Saul was now indeed a new man. and He said, he, that is Paul, This is God speaking to Ananias. He is my chosen instrument to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Sometime after that first hearing, sometime around the year 8066, Paul was beheaded by decree of Nero's court. Paul was ready. He had already said during his first Roman imprisonment, five or six years earlier, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now as he is at that moment, as he anticipates his death, he He states in 2 Timothy 4 verses 6 to 7, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. A short time later, his head would be removed from his body. In fact, a short time after that, the apostle Peter will also be executed by decree of Nero. Sometime before the summer of 8068, Peter is again, or Peter is brought before Nero's court, but in a different context because Peter was not a Roman citizen. And so he wasn't afforded a humane death. Instead, he was ordered to be crucified. And Peter, out of his Love for his Lord and his respect for Jesus says, do not crucify me like Jesus. I am not worthy of that. Church history says that he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not deserve the honor. We even read from Peter in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, that Peter too would have been ready for such a fate. He encourages the church around the time When persecution was breaking out, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. A few months after the executions of Paul and Peter, in the spring of 8068, Nero began to lose control of the empire. His officers begin to ignore his commands openly. The Senate declares him, Nero, to be an enemy of the state and begins proceedings to determine Nero's fate. Fearful of what awaited him, Nero prepared to take his own life, but he lacked the fortitude. He forced one of his secretaries to take a knife and to slay him. and He died in his blood on June 9th, AD 68, at the age of 30. And he was the last emperor of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which began with the great Augustus, Caesar Augustus. His life brought that dynasty to an end. In summarizing what happened to Nero at the end of his life, one statement by one writer is serves as a good summary. De Quincey says, "...perhaps history contains no more impressive scenes..." than those in which the justice of providence at length arrested the monstrous career of Nero. Let's look then in closing at his legacy. Nero is remembered as a, today as an irresponsible, ineffectual, and cruel leader. His poor leadership led to revolts. And it precipitated the chaos that threatened the integrity of the empire after his death. There was a very tumultuous time that followed Nero's death because of all the insubordination that had been created by Nero's most ineffectual leadership. Some of the details, in fact, of of Nero's life that are recorded in the early Roman historians are even held suspect today by historians today because those early Roman historians so disdained the life of Nero that it's assumed that there's a lot of bias in what those historians record of this man's life. Nero murdered anyone who crossed him, including family members like his own mother, a stepbrother, his own wife, an unborn child. And as he grew older, his sexual debauchery only increased in perversity. He embarrassed the ruling class by his shameful acts of narcissism. He loved himself, made no qualms about it. He was responsible for the death of, deaths of countless innocent Christians, including the apostles Paul and Peter. And he was abandoned by the commanders of the Praetorian Guard who had put him in power in the first place and by the Senate. And he had to cowardly ask a secretary to take his life because he feared his punishment. Nero's legacy can be summed up as follows. Nero, one writer writes, after Judas became the most accursed of the human race. De Quincey says Nero was the first in that long line of monsters who under the title of Caesar's dishonored humanity. Quincy goes on to state, it is the most striking instance upon record of a dramatic and extreme vengeance overtaking extreme guilt. For as Nero had exhausted the utmost possibilities of crime, so it may be affirmed that he drank the cup of suffering to the very extremity of what his peculiar nature allowed. Now contrast that legacy with the legacy of the Apostle Paul. A BBC documentary, a secular documentary, even said this, St. Paul is undoubtedly one of the most important figures in the history of the Western world. J. Gresham Machen, the great theologian, said, the Christian movement began in the midst of a very peculiar people, that is the Jews, in AD thirty-five, it would have appeared to be a super to a superficial observer to be a Jewish sect. Thirty years later, it was plainly a world religion. And by whose writing, by whose mouth, by whose hands did this happen? Through the Apostle Paul. Another writer, A.T. Robertson, said Paul knew how to think and had such passion of soul and keenness of intellect that he still challenges the respect of the greatest minds of the modern world. And just look at it today, we still study Paul's writings. Who studies the writings of Nero? And another statement I think summarizes it the best. There would come a day when men would call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. Nero serves as a fitting conclusion to our study, for he represents all that is antithetical to the life of the Apostle Paul. But let us not go too far with that. Yes, Nero was a maker of martyrs. Paul was too. Think back to Paul's early life. Think back to Stephen. As Paul stood there, much like Nero would have stood, giving affirmation of Paul's martyrdom, Paul himself at one time had stood giving affirmation of the martyrdom of Stephen. You see, there are many things that do link Paul and Nero. Many things with respect to their former way of life, their sinfulness, their inability to please God. The difference was the gospel. And I want to close with the reading of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, that summarize what really made the difference between Paul and Nero. It wasn't just their names, it wasn't just their upbringing, it was the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank him immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul was not such a savory character at one time either. Violent, aggressive, a persecutor, a maker of martyrs. Elsewhere, Paul will even state that he was responsible for the deaths of those beyond Stephen, men and women, throwing them into jail and casting his vote of execution against them. That was Paul. But the gospel can save a man like Paul. And it did. It transformed his life. And you may be here today and you may say, I'm more like Nero than Paul. I know my own heart. And those very things that we talked about with Nero, they're in my heart. I just don't act on them, but they're in there. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the love and forgiveness extended in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, no. Look at me. Why did God save me? Demonstrate that even the foremost of sinners can be saved can be forgiven, can receive mercy. And if Paul can, so can you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful study you've given us of these men around Paul. We thank you even for the examples of these villains. The examples of these who stand diametrically opposed to that which... Paul stood for, to that which your gospel proclaims, because it helps us to remember that but for the grace that we find in you, we would be Nero's, we would be Hymenaeus's, we would be Demas's, but for your grace. So we thank you, Father, that you are a God who saves us, not on the basis of what we do, not on how worthy we are. You you don't withhold the gospel from us because we're ugly and the vile of, of every wretched sin is found in our hearts. No, you don't withhold us from us because of that. No, you save us to demonstrate your power, your goodness, and your love. And we're thankful that you have. We're thankful that we can now walk in the line of the Apostle Paul, and if the day should come, if the day should come, we would be able and willing to put out our necks to receive the sword or to stretch out our hands and have them nailed to a cross. And we see in that the victory. We thank you in the name of Jesus for that. Amen.